I want to say a couple of things. First of all, we're very fortunate to have uh, the musicians that we have who are willing to serve, sacrifice time to lead us in worship. And one of the songs they were singing, the last one, there's a phrase in there that says, I see a near revival. And I don't know what the first thought is, the image that comes into your head when you hear revival. It used to be for me that meant a lot of people singing hymns and maybe there was a tent you know, maybe there was a bunch of hands going up, and <clears throat> maybe the aisles were flooded with people during an invitation. But in reality, that's just a response to good worship. A revival is so much more than that. A revival is when a group of people come together for a common cause and a common value that is so overwhelming, that is so passionate, that it leads them to do ridiculous things to make sure that what they believe in is furthered. That's what a revival really is. A revival is something that awakens animal spirits, if you will, awakens emotions in your heart that cause you not just to feel good during a few minutes during a song, but changes the way you make decisions and the way you act on Monday and Tuesday and throughout the week. And so when I hear that song, I see a near revival, my thoughts have shifted over the years that I want to see a near revival that happens during the week about how we act, how we serve our Heavenly Dad. And we've been going through, by the way, my name is Joe Davis. I'm the lead teaching pastor here for the garden. And we've been going through this idea of a movement. And again, I want to remind you, from this point forward, if you do anything that makes it seem like you believe church is an institution, we're going to smack you. <laughs> we're going to cut you off mid-sentence, smack, and you'll get the picture after a while. Some of you came in this morning with red marks, and I'm sorry that Megan hit you so hard, but still... But church is a movement. It's not an institution. And last week we talked about how to fund a movement and we talked about how generosity replaced tithing once Christ came. He transformed giving from being this mathematical, <clears throat> compliant, 10% type of thing and he transformed it into something that was overwhelming, shocking, amazing. And he used great examples about the church in Macedonia that had hardship plus poverty plus generosity equaled amazing. And that's what we're hoping we come to in that perspective, right? So let's look at number five in this series. I want to talk about how you empower a movement. Funding a movement is great. There are a lot of things that have money, but they have to have power. And the only way you take money and transform it into a movement is if you empower it through sacrifice. And before we do that, we have to define what sacrifice was in the Old Testament. Now, you understand sacrifice, just like tithing now, just like the word tithe, or, you know, 10%, sacrifice had a very technical, specific, narrow, bloody definition. It was a crucial part of worshiping within the system of Judaism. Without the proper sacrifice, the scripture said, there would be no connection to God. <clears throat> the type of sacrifice was very important. It had to be a specific type of animal on specific days of the year. The animal had to meet specific requirements. It had to be sacrificed a specific way by specific people in a specific place. 
The whole Jewish culture was built around this system of sacrifice through the temple by the high priests. The Scripture did teach us without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. That's in the Old Testament, that concept. But many times what would happen is people would not have a chance to participate in this sacrificial worship themselves. So what they would do is they would go to the temple experts in the temple merchant area. They would buy an animal that was prepared correctly, that was raised correctly, that was, that was the right type of animal because the temple experts knew exactly what type of sacrifice was required, what type of animal it needed to be, what time of year this animal needed to apply to this particular problem, and they knew what the animal had to look like, how it had to be raised. They knew how it had to be killed. And so people would go, they would buy their sacrifice and let the priests do it for them, and then they'd be on their way. So they would pay for their sacrifice of praise. They would come in and pay and worship and leave. Now, that gave the temple a ton of money, but it was an institution. It wasn't a movement. But just like with tithing and generosity, something happened to sacrifice at the cross that changed it dramatically. Because Jesus, who was the perfect, without blemish, Lamb of God, who gave his life and shed his blood so that we might live, transformed the need of animal sacrifice and opened up a whole new gate. Now, there were some young ladies in the back that had a box of little cute kittens. Anybody see them? They were adorable. And I thought about starting off the service by holding one of these cute kittens and saying, today we're going to talk about animal sacrifice. <laughs> they wouldn't let me. I don't know. I'll have to ask my mom. That's what she said. It was cute. It was cute. <laughs> oh, well, if you have to ask your mom, forget it. I figured I could manipulate the girl into letting me, but not the mom. The mom's going to say, who do you think you are, Pastor Joe? But something happened to sacrifice and Paul began this teaching on sacrifice that was very um, offensive. It was very transformative. It was out of the box. And what Paul began to do is he would use very Jewish, powerful descriptions of the types of sacrifices that he would be talking about, that Jewish people would relate to, and they would understand, and they would either be offended or inspired. And he did this on purpose. There's a couple of passages. I'm not going to read them all to you, but basically in Philippians 4.18, he says, bring your sacrifice of praise that is a fragrant offering, acceptable and pleasing. He uses these words fragrant because there were incense involved in the sacrifice system in the temple. And the words acceptable and pleasing, acceptable doesn't mean, okay, look, that's acceptable. What acceptable meant was, that's perfect. That will do. Pleasing meant God's wrath is pleased. And so Paul would use these very specific words that were for temple worship, and he'd say, as believers, you bring your sacrifice in. It's a sweet aroma. There's the idea of the incense in the temple. Your sacrifice is acceptable and pleasing. It is the right type of sacrifice. And by the way, the Philippians were not Jewish. Paul was teaching Gentiles 
that they could perform an acceptable, sweet, pleasing sacrifice. In 2 Timothy uh, 4, 6, Paul says, and if I am poured out as a drink offering, he was talking about himself as a person being poured out as a drink offering. A drink offering was a specific type of sacrifice done in the temple. And Paul says, that particular sacrifice is now what I'm doing with my life. I'm a living sacrifice being poured out as a drink offering. Again, a very Jewish term where he takes an Old Testament temple term and replaces it and uses it to describe New Testament life. In Hebrews, Hebrews is a great book. Hebrews is basically a full treatise explaining how the sacrifice of Jesus was far superior to the sacrifice of the priests in the Old Testament. And the ending application for that for Jewish believers was that they didn't have to do that anymore. Here's what he says in Hebrews 13, um, 15 through 16. He says, Through him let us continually, not just once a year, get this, through him let us continually, Jewish worshipers, offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are acceptable and pleasing to God. And at the end of Hebrews, basically he's saying, look, you don't have to do it once a year. You have to do it certain times a year. You don't have to be a drink offering or a dove or a lamb. Or, don't worry about that. Now your sacrifice is one of praise. It acknowledges his name, shares what you have. Those things are good and now acceptable, pleasing sacrifices. And so basically we saw this transformation of sacrifice take place. First of all, sacrifice was through the priesthood of all believers now, not just a select few. Everybody could participate in this act of sacrifice. Sacrifice could, uh, became something that could happen at any time, anywhere, not just at the temple on certain times of day or certain days of the year. And sacrifice took on a whole different purpose. Sacrifice was no longer to have bloodshed to cover our sin temporarily because our sin was taken away by Jesus, the ultimate Lamb of God. But now sacrifice was not designed to please God. And if you give or sacrifice time or talents or treasure to please God, wrong motive. Now sacrifice was designed not to appease God or to get connected to him because that's works. Now sacrifice's new purpose was to expand the movement, express gratitude, and pour out thankfulness. See, to too many comfortable Jewish believers, this was a mind-blowing, radical, threatening, revolutionary teaching. An offering had to be without blemish to be acceptable, right? We understand that. That's what Christ made us. Do you understand? In the midst of your sinfulness, in the midst of your failures and your flaws, Christ, through his blood, the ultimate Lamb of God, the ultimate acceptable perfect, without blemish sacrifice has made you acceptable, 
a sweet aroma, pleasing to God, unblemished in his eyes. So now, sacrifice of praise is acceptable and pleasing to God. Think for a moment. What does it mean that your sacrifice is pleasing? And this leads us to one of the most famous passages in the New Testament that teach us about sacrifice. I broke it up a little bit, so I'm going to read you the first part. This is Romans 12. We're going to go verses 1 through 8. Here's what Paul says to the Romans. Again, most of them were probably Gentile believers. Not all, but most. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is the least you can do. Some translations say, which is your reasonable service. It's just reasonable that you would present your bodies a living sacrifice because of God's mercies. It's the least you can do, he says. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What does he mean by transformed thought process? A lot of Christians look at this and it says, be transformed, be not conformed to this word. Here's, that means we shouldn't be sinful. Don't like Hollywood. Don't listen to rap music or watch rap videos. Don't watch bad shows on network television. Don't listen to Stairway to Heaven. Because that's bad. Be transformed by the renewing. What Paul was saying was this transform yourself from this present world and he was talking about the world of how sacrifice was viewed the whole passage is about sacrifice and he says look because of god's mercies you have been transformed so now get rid of the old thought process be transformed by the renewing of your thought process so that you can discern what type of sacrifices here's what he says what type of sacrifices you may do so that you can determine what is good and acceptable and perfect. Again, specific words that Jewish sacrificers would understand. Now you have the ability, Christians, to determine what is good and acceptable and perfect, not just the priests. You see that? Modern day believers think this refers to bad stuff in the world. But think about this, 99.9% .9 of the people who lived during that time could never have dreamed about making this decision about what would be an acceptable sacrifice. They would have loved to be set free from the burden of temple worship to become living sacrifices, but they couldn't. <clears throat> but now we could be transformed to become sacrifice makers that are constant and alive. And so now you, you, as believers, have this amazing privilege to decide how God has called you to participate. And that's the second part of verse 2. For by the grace given to me, I say, everyone among you, not think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Don't sacrifice with arrogance like the priests did. But think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, through many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. And he says in there, look, 
The way that you can sacrifice is as varied as there are people in your fellowship. It's not just one way anymore. All of you have the power to perform sacrifice. And the last part of this passage talks about all the different people with all the different gifts. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Let me read it again. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to each of us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now, all of a sudden, Paul says there's no longer one type of sacrifice acceptable. No one type is superior to the other. We always like to do that, don't we? But they were all pleasing. And the idea of sacrifice had been exponentially expanded. It now included money. It included time. It included service. And it included talents. Why? Because the work of the blood of Christ, now all these things, not just killed animals, but all these things have become pleasing to God. Now, this is a very deep theological concept I'm sharing with you. It's not simple stuff. But why is it important for you to grasp this concept? This is important for you to understand the power that you have as a priest. Far too often, I think that we in church slip into old habits with our attempts to sacrifice. And somewhere along the line, we begin to rely on others to carry the load. Maybe we rely on others to carry the load financially. Maybe we allow others to carry the load emotionally or physically or intellectually. And I'm afraid to tell you this. If you just tithe or just give some amount of money and come to church, you are doing the same thing that the Old Testament worshipers did. You're coming in, you're purchasing your dove, you're letting other people do the work, and then you're leaving. And if that happens too often, we will die as an institution because we'll have no power, because nobody is sacrificing. We're just purchasing See, we need to fulfill Romans 12, 1 and 2. And we need to recognize that we need to become living sacrifices. It's so much more than purchasing an animal for the priest to do it for you. It's so much more than just coming in and giving a little bit of money so that I can preach a message and Megan can lead the band and then you go home. That's not sacrifice. That's purchase. I want sacrifice out of our congregation. We need to develop new passions about our role in this movement. And we have to recognize that if we aren't thinking 24-7 about how can I sacrifice, if I'm not doing what Romans teaches me, try to discern what is good and acceptable in my life and bring it 
Bring it. Whether it's your money, your time, your talents, your mercy, your passion, whatever it is, you have to be a priest. You have to be involved in sacrifice because without it, we become a powerless one hour a week show. Maybe we can be a good show, but we'll just be a show. Being part of a movement requires the mindset of being a constant living sacrifice. In every area of your life, what words describe your sacrifice of praise? Is it multidimensional? It needs to be. Is it reliant on the work of others? Does it go beyond money? You see, guys, a movement takes action. A movement takes sacrifice. Or else we, as a congregation, become powerless. Take advantage of the fact that Jesus has freed you up to know what is good, what is acceptable, what is perfect. Because now, and this is what I'm going to close with, just to make sure you understand, this is now where we stand. And last week, or next week is our last one in this series on a movement and giving and things like that. And I'm hoping what happens is the effect will be that we open up more of our lives to this movement. But right now, I feel like that where we are right now, we are very good at compartmentalizing our involvement in a movement, right? Well, this is my church life. This is my family life. This is my work life. And this is my nobody knows about life. <laughs> right? Guys, this is how important it is, and I know it might sound exhausting, and you're right, it is. For example, for me, I love my nightlife kids and my ministry. Woo, but I'm getting old. There are some when I heard that. There are some Wednesdays where I'm really tired. A couple weeks ago I had food poisoning. And I was throwing up all over the place. And I had to stay home on a Wednesday night. And while sitting there being sick, I was laying on the couch and I was saying, it's fun to be home on a Wednesday. But I'm sick. And then I missed it very quickly. But my point is, nightlife is part of where I'm sacrificing to be part of a movement. You understand, it's exhausting. It's tiring. But that's what a movement does to you. It taps you out. If you're not being tapped out by your involvement, you are part of an institution and you are not bringing your sacrifice of praise you're just purchasing something